Welcome to Rethink, a podcast focused on the future of skilled nursing. I'm Tim Mullaney, Managing Editor of Skilled Nursing News. I'm joined for this episode by Tom Coble, CEO of Oklahoma-based skilled nursing operator Elmbrook Management. Tom is also a value-based care pioneer who has run an institutional special needs plan since 2005, and he's a former board chairman of the American Healthcare Association. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to highlight Skilled Nursing News' upcoming Rethink Conference, taking place September 13th and 14th in Chicago. Rethink is the premier skilled nursing event that brings executives together for content and networking that addresses trends, challenges, and the future of the nursing home industry. Learn more about the conference and get tickets at skillednursingnews.com events. And now my conversation with Tom Coble. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking part. Uh, my pleasure to be here. So we can jump in. Obviously, you're known as a pioneer in iSNPs, so I definitely want to talk about that. But you're also um, an operator, so let's start there and talk about a topic that I think is really top of mind for everyone in the space right now, which is staffing. So my question is, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the worst, how bad would you say the staffing situation is right now uh, for your facilities? You know, we operate across, what, 13 buildings in nine rural counties in Oklahoma. So uh, uh, staffing is can be a 10 one day and not the next with most people, but it varies by county. But I think over an average now, it's starting to settle down a little bit. I'd say it's probably five to six on average. Great. Are there any initiatives that you've been able to um, undertake across the portfolio that's moved the needle at all in a good way on recruitment and retention? Yes. Uh, we ended up going out and proactively trying to partner with uh, all the nursing schools in our area. And so we we are uh, have partnered with Langston University, who has a satellite nursing school here in Ardmore, Oklahoma, where our office is, our home office is, and where I'm at. And uh, so we, they could not find instructors for their nursing school they, to fill all the slots. They had plenty of students wanting to come in, just could not find instructors. So we went out and uh, we found uh, nurse practitioners that were wanted to not only teach, but also to to do clinical hands-on work in facilities. And uh, we we hired them. And uh, so they work part-time uh, when Langston's in session as instructors. Also uh, then work for us and uh, do clinical work within our facilities. And uh, we also have partnered with in the process of partnering with a junior college here in the area that has an RN program to uh, provide uh, clinical space for them to do more hands-on nursing. And also with the LPN schools that are run through our career tech system here in Oklahoma. So we have gotten very proactive with those programs and talking with them about what we do as skilled nursing uh, facilities that uh, skilled nursing's changed so much that what happens in our buildings is a lot different from what the, the students think. And um, then on top of that, we took and uh, we've established a lot of scholarships 
and that we're, we're, we're giving to, to qualified students who want to go, not only our staff, but potential students uh, coming into those nursing programs. So uh, we're, we're just trying to do uh, anything we can to get people interested and into the programs. And those are starting to pay off. We've had those going now for almost two years. And so we're, that's why it's starting to help ease the pain for us and how we go about it. Wonderful. That's great to hear. All right. Besides staffing, I'm curious, what are you most focused on at the moment in your role uh, as the leader of Elmbrook? Well, uh, we're in the, uh, starting to transition our company from skilled nursing organization into a population health management organization. And so I'm in the process of just focused on trying to develop at the state level, the opportunity for us to uh, become a home and community-based provider and uh, using our uh, facilities as the hub for the services and where they happen, but also developing relationships out on not-for-profit campuses where we're opening uh, medical clinics so that we can uh, provide services into those communities and uh, and help them out uh, as, you know, everyone wants to remain at home as, as much as possible. So we're trying to develop a network and a system where we can help those communities take care of their uh, uh, members or people living there and uh, help fulfill that promise. That's fascinating. The uh, when you say you're creating medical cl- clinics at not non for profits, is that like at on the campuses of not for profit senior living organizations? We're our first ones are that we're working on are here in Ardmore, and uh, but we're going in and uh, opening clinics where they can their members can come and uh, see nurse practitioners for their care, do outpatient therapy. We can do some IV therapy and those type of things without having to leave the campus. Transportation is a terrible problem, uh, getting it coordinated and, and taken care of. So if you can move people around on a campus and uh, treat them without them having to be taken out somewhere in the community, it's much easier and really a, a lot helps coordinate it a lot better. Yeah, that's great. So I have some more questions about that, actually, but I assume that it, it might be related to the work you've done for many years in the Institutional Special Needs Plan, Medicare Advantage space. So maybe we should rewind first. And you founded the nation's first provider-owned ISNP in 2005, I believe. So for those who don't already know, can you share the story of why and how you founded that plan? Sure. I came into the to the nursing home business uh, from the oil and gas business, and uh, have and so I was sitting in the behind the business office desk in a 126 bed skilled facility here in in Ardmore on March 1st, 1993, as the co-owner, and having never worked a day in healthcare in my life, and so it was been a it was a a pretty good leap. Um, the partner that the facility that we had purchased was Medicaid and private pay only. So it was not even Medicare certified. 
at that time, like a lot of other facilities here in Oklahoma. We became Medicare certified on January 1 of 1994, so we were able to do that very quickly. And once, once our staff was trained to start IVs and we had a couple of nurses that could do pick lines and, you know, we were doing uh, EKGs over the telephone lines back then. I mean, none of which is rocket science, but uh, once you could see those talents work, then you start to realize that your residents are going to the hospital to be treated for something that you could tr- actually treat in the facility. And so my background coming into this had been in systems and uh, going in and uh, reworking systems and updating them. So it got me to thinking about what what if we could take care of these residents and in the form of, uh, at that point in time, it was Medicare Plus Choice. Uh, but is he, that, so that was before Medicare Advantage came about in 2004. And so um, we, we did an analysis and uh, our, our Medicare of all of our admissions in one year out of this facility. And uh, the results were that uh, we thought that 70% of our hospital admissions could have been avoided if we'd been allowed to just treat in place without sending them to the ER. And uh, I think that tends to hold even to today. And um, so that's how finally in 2005, when um, in late 2004, the MMA was passed that uh, authorized Medicare Advantage. And um, so we, we were one of the first in because we've been working on a long time and we're ready to go. That's terrific. Really striking in terms of the huge percentage that you thought you could uh, treat in place without having something to the hospital. So I guess to circle back to the current strategy that you mentioned about transforming into more of a population health organization is the medic, to what extent, I guess, is the Medicare Advantage program underpinning that move? For instance, with these medical clinics that you're offering on campuses, uh, are people who would be seen there potentially members of a Medicare Advantage plan that you, the organization owns? Yes. No, it, it is uh, the Medicare, the ISNIPs are the foundation to this whole program. You know, the, the, the thing about the ISNIP that I, I don't know if most people think about it, but the ISNIP allows us to change the benefit structure the Medicare benefit structure for the members we serve. And so, um, you know, a person who's 65 and typically on Medicare, they're vacationing with their grandkids at the beach or on cruises or over in Europe, and they're very active. And that person needs a whole different set of benefits than a person who is 85 and living in a skilled nursing facility. And so when you're able to to go in and waive the three-day stay where you can skill them in place and then add additional benefits that meet their needs uh, uh, within the facility and, and helps their family out too, then that's what we're trying to do is just 
get this benefit package in place so that when someone does require a higher level of care, we're able to enroll them into the, the ISNIP and help uh, use those benefits to manage their care properly in a, in a way that uh, delivers proactive preventative medical care rather than waiting on someone to get sick enough to be treated. Yeah. So it occurs to me, you know, you're talking about transforming uh, into a population health company. We've heard similar messages and strategies from other providers that I think have been active in the ISNIP space. Cantex comes to mind, um, Marquis on the West Coast. And I think that might be daunting to some skilled nursing operators who feel confident about their ability to deliver care in the skilled nursing facility setting, but then they think about entering this world of value-based care in a bigger way. And do you think that's inevitably opening the door that once you start down that path, you're going to have to become a provider of home community-based care? You're going to have to become a provider of primary care in sort of a clinic setting. And, and how would you speak to those concerns about operators who are afraid that they don't maybe have those skill sets? Well, you know, the the most daunting thing I've heard in a long time is now I'm now hearing some people talking about having everyone in some form of managed care model by 2030, uh, mm-hmm. 2033, if you think about it. I mean, we're almost to the federal, starting the federal year 24 here in a few months. So, so what happens when fee-for-service is gone? Mm-hmm. So people need, uh, uh, providers need to be thinking about, well, if it's, you know, we're probably approaching 50% managed care now. Uh, and so how are you going to get paid and how are you going to deliver services? So for me, if you just sit back and look at how you fit into the, the provider of those services, and particularly if you're in a, in a rural area, um, if you're in a, in a high density urban area, uh, you might be able to get by with just focusing on one specialty and doing it. But, you know, in, in these rural areas, there's no one to provide the home community based services that are here. And we don't want to do case management. We want to be the provider of the service to the, to the resident in their, in their facility. Uh, the triple A's currently do the case management and they do a good job at that. They just can't provide providers to do that in the facilities and in the homes, not the facilities. So I think it's um, everybody's capable of doing it. It's just, I think, having the ability to see down the road and and actually buy in to the fact that fee for service is going to be gone. And we're headed into a managed care world that is going to be um, value-based driven and quality and uh, being able to put the pieces together to to get them on there. Because it is, it it takes a lot to start putting this together. Yeah, Yeah, I've seen those uh, announcements from CMS that they're pushing toward that goal of moving toward managed care. And I think it's so mind-boggling to think about such a big change, but it sounds like providers really need to take that seriously, uh, even if it's hard to sort of wrap your mind around the fact that that actually is going to happen and fee-for-service might essentially go away. sounds like 
that is that the message that I'm hearing that you really you think that is a realistic goal and and operators need to treat it that way? Well, I, I don't know if 2030 is a realistic goal mm-hmm. or not, but I know that they're everything that they're doing. Uh, CMS is doing particularly out of uh, CMMI. I mean, it's uh, they're they're being very proactive about this, and they're pushing very hard trying to get these different models in place. You know, once you get the tipping point out there, you get to sixty percent or so, it could fold up in a heartbeat. It's going, I think it's going to happen, and uh, we just our organization wants to be prepared to ride those services and take that risk when it does. Um, all right. That, so I, I really want to get some of your perspective, given that you've been uh, so active in this space for so long. So what are you most pleased with in terms of how iSNPs or Medicare Advantage generally have grown and developed within the skilled nursing and nursing home space going back all the way to those early days, 2005 or, or earlier? Yeah. You know, uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that even though I've, I guess it's it's kind of a push and pull kind of thing. I have been trying to convince everyone for since 2005 that this is something everyone needs to look at. And it's taken a long time to get there. But, you know, when you're taking a model and really introducing a new model that completely changes what's been done for all these years, it's very hard to do. And so, but I'm very happy now that uh, we really have got a lot of uh, companies going and HCA has got uh, Population Health Management Council going and uh, the members there. And, and uh, so as uh, the, a lot of the state associations are putting together their own networks and looking for uh, ISNIP companies to partner with or with their members. So it's it's really starting to take off, and I'm 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 very pleased uh, that it finally has, and that uh, this this model puts the nursing facility in charge. You're taking risk. You're you're being very proactive. You've got nurse practitioners in your buildings. Your physicians are in your buildings more over time, and it just completely improve, improves quality, and it and just the family's satisfaction improves with it. And it's just, uh, it's taking care of the person at the right time in the right place with uh, the tools necessary to give them a high level of care. Right, and just uh, to make sure I'm understanding correctly, when we're talking about the the model you're talking about, it is, skilled nursing operators uh, having some sort of ownership and going at risk in an in an ISNP and having some control over the benefits and the financial upside versus uh, just having to work with, you know, the managed care payers in a market and sort of accept the rates that whatever they can negotiate. That's that's exactly right. I mean, this is this is about providers going at risk. But they they're they're going at risk giving full control. They're not going in and paying them less than what Medicare pays. Uh, they have the ability to actually earn more. Uh, so this this is the model we're talking about. It's not traditional managed care in it at all. It's completely different. Right. 
So then the flip side of my last question, uh, what's been most frustrating to you or where do you still have, see the, the most room for improvement in terms of the arc of the ISNET model within the skilled nursing space? You know, I, I think we're, we're working to, uh, there's still a lot of uh, rules, regulations that CMS have. We're working to get change that where it goes back to uh, what works for a 65-year-old Medicare recipient. Uh, You don't need to do all those things for a skilled nursing resident that's a member of a plan. So trying to, and CMS is really starting to uh, be open and uh, recognizing the difference that we provide in these plans versus other Medicare Advantage is that this continues to move along. Uh, it looks like maybe we'll get a little traction with it and see if we can get some of these unnecessary regulations that we're having to go through. Some of it has to do with network. Um, and uh, so to be able to, to take care of our, uh, our members of our plans. And, I, and I'm just I used to, as I said earlier, I was frustrated very much so with what uh, the growth for a period of time. But I mean, now it's uh, uh, everybody's starting to get engaged and it's really nice to see that after all these years. Uh, wonderful. So I want to pivot a little bit. Another role that you've held in the past uh, that's notable is the chairman of the American Healthcare Association. So I'm curious, um, what was the biggest lesson that you learned uh, from your time in that role? You know, when you become chair, you uh, you think you kind of know the space, but you really become eyes wide open at that point in time as you start to see how it works. You know, the American Healthcare Association, more than 50% of the members are independent owners. So you've, you've really got a dynamic group of independent owners who are working to kind of uh, make sure they're they're keeping their operations as efficient as possible and and uh, trying to provide care that's coming down the road in the futures and and in a lot of ways the independent owners have led the way on ISNPs. they're the ones that saw and and implemented it in the, in the beginning and then the you've got the other half that are large multi-companies and uh, in the past those were the companies mainly focused on Medicare. And uh, so being able to go in and uh, and understand how these business models operated so differently than uh, to be able to, to talk to them about, you know, this is why you need to, to do that. And it, it was it was a challenge, but uh, it was the, the two years I was chair were the most some of the most beneficial times of my life. And the association has to remember whoever is chair that we're here to represent the little guy that has one building in Oklahoma, just like Genesis when they had 400 and something buildings, and uh, and to not forget the little guy and keep everything focused and and on point. And I was fortunate enough to be able to work with Mark Parkinson, who has been done a knockout job as a CEO of the organization. 
Yeah, you bring up the independent operator, the little guy. Uh, we've seen, unfortunately, so many closures, especially in rural areas in the last year or so. Do you think that it's still viable to be an independent, small independent operator? Or do you think that it's becoming necessary to have a certain amount of scale to succeed? Well, you know, it's, it's becoming very difficult to, to maintain and operate as an independent owner. So many of the things that we've had to do, particularly during COVID, with now we're having to all this reporting that we do just doesn't allow them to hire the staff necessary to do it. We doubled our company's size since uh, 2018. And it's simply to get big enough to, to be able to hire the staff to operate the way that we can. And uh, so it's going to be much more difficult to, to do that. And all the buildings that we have op- that we have acquired have been independent owner facilities. It is what it is. And I think it just comes down to the point that independent owners are going to have to decide whether they want to grow or they, they just want to divest themselves and get out of this building, this business, because I don't see it getting any easier going forward and uh, but you can put vehicles and and you can grow without growing buildings i mean you can get into home community based services you can become part of an isnip you can do uh, you can have your own nurse practitioners and uh, so there's a lot of ways to grow without without buying buildings and uh, so i think it's your choice and you really need to think about it because cms is not going to be joking around with this stuff. They're very serious about what what they want us to be in compliance with. And if you're not in compliance, it's going to be, it's, it's, it, those are unpleasant places to be. Yeah. Well, on that note, you bring up CMS. What do you think right now is the sort of most important policy issue confronting the industry? Oh, the staffing initiative mm-hmm. that they have and trying to formalize and, uh, require us to have staffing levels that number one it's our our as we talked about earlier it's our biggest challenge right now is finding staff to work in these buildings anyway and yeah then they want to come in and increase the amount of staff required when they know we can't hire the staff in the first place it's it's just almost it's you could almost laugh about it if it wasn't so serious so it's um but it's by far the staffing initiative that's been put off now for a while. It didn't come out with the final rules. So I guess we will see. I know HCA is working very hard with, uh, with the White House and CMS trying to uh, uh, help them understand the bind that it, it's putting us in and uh, what these requirements, if they're not paid for and thought about, uh, what it'll do to the industry. Yeah. Uh, I think everyone's holding their breath for sure. So curious if you can speak a little bit to the future of Ombrook. I know you mentioned the big growth that you've undertaken since 2018, I believe you said. Uh, any further growth in the cards or is there, is the focus really on this shift toward the population health health model that you were describing earlier? Our growth is really the population mm-hmm. health model, the growth, getting clinics uh, out, getting them open. Uh, we're taking it kind of on a county by county basis here in Oklahoma. Uh, we will acquire 
homes that fit into a business model in places that we we might need them or they might come available but we want to get the clinics open get our nurse practitioners uh, continue to to grow that business and get them out in the community because we're doing we're involved in a cms has a uh, uh, a program where they pay you to follow your discharges home and uh, from your skilled business and we've been doing that started on october 1st and that program's been very that train is called transitional care management and that program's been very very uh, beneficial to us you just further create a relationship with your the residents that you have discharged into your community and once you're able to follow up with the home services they need there then you've developed that relationship with the resident and their family where that if they need care in the future that hopefully they'll come back to you for that care yeah great all right uh, i've got two more questions um kind of bigger picture the first is I'm asking you, imagine you're talking to an aspiring nurse. Can you pick a story? What's a story from your career that you would choose to tell that person in an effort to get them excited about focusing specifically on the skilled nursing long-term care space? I've thought a lot about this one. There there are so many examples. I, I don't know if I can just pick one out, but when uh, we're talking to future nurses or or current nursing students, um, I talk to them and talk to them about this is, uh, this is a calling. And it really is a calling, whether you're a nurse or if you've been a housekeeper or uh, anyone in a, re- in a facility for a long time. But you're there and you bond with the, the residents that come to us for care. To me, it's biblical in the Bible in Matthew 40, where Jesus is talking about taking care of the widows and the orphans and and the people that are sick and and all those things, because that's what we do. People, a person who's a stroke, who's had a stroke and can't talk and may not be able to communicate very well, you know, they're a prisoner in their own body. So prisoners come in many forms. And so we're here to take care of those that can't take care of themselves, whether they can afford to take care of themselves or not. We're going to treat them like the person that they are. And I don't know how many settings you can work in where the last voice a person hears on earth is yours and the next voice is God's. That's powerful. And uh, my last question is, the name of this podcast is Rethink. So I'm, I'm curious, what's something, it could be anything, a common operating practice, a piece of conventional wisdom from the industry. Uh, what's something that you think nursing home operators uh, need to rethink? Well, I, I just think they need to, to, we're going through such an evolution right now. They need to, if, if you haven't sat down and started trying to rethink everything you do, you need to. This isn't a competition. We need to be sharing with each other. There are unique partnerships that are coming out of this, particularly in ISNIP field where you've got providers coming together as partners, uh, where probably in the past they were thought of as competitors. 
you know, I think everybody's willing to, I know that we are, we're willing to share anything we're doing with anyone because this industry is going to have to change and we've changed a lot, but it just keeps coming and coming and we're going to have to change more. So that's my word is continue to, to share. And if you're not, you've got to look at how you're doing, how you're recruiting staff. I would have never thought we would have been involved in nursing schools to the extent that we are. And so just look, everything's different in your state, in your counties. So just don't be afraid. You've got a seat at the table because the hospitals have to have a place to discharge too. And and that happens to be us. All right. That's a great note to end the conversation on, I think. Tom, really appreciate all your insights and all the information you've shared. Uh, thank you very much. And, and uh, we, we just appreciate everything you guys do too. That does it for this episode of Rethink. Once again, I'd like to remind listeners about Skilled Nursing News' upcoming Rethink Conference, taking place September 13th and 14th in Chicago. Visit skillednursingnews.com events to learn more and get tickets. Until next time, I'm Tim Mullaney. Thanks for listening.